Welcome to Hedge Fund Tips with Tom Hayes for the week ending May 1st, 2020. This is our 28th video cast and 18th podcast. And I'd like to kick it off this week with um, a segment I did yesterday morning with Lily Liu in Shanghai. She was on CGTN Global Business. That was exciting to be on that uh, first um uh, international, although I did did do one for Bloomberg in Turkey, but it was nice to be on yesterday morning, very early. Uh, and we discussed in that, so uh, first off, thanks to Lily Liu and Liang Ru uh, for putting me on their show. And we went into, she was asking questions about the GDP print of negative 4.8% for Q1 in the United States versus negative 35 and I, you know, basically went into, and you can check this out. You can just click on Featured On to see all of these. Uh, but a couple of the key points I wanted to get into, you know, the bad points of the GDP were obviously consumer spending, uh, exports and inventories, uh, consumer spending down negative 7.6, exports down negative uh, 8.7, and also healthcare was a major contributor, uh, hit very, very hard. You can see this chart here from Barron's. Um, and if you want to read the article, just Google that. Healthcare was the biggest drag on first quarter GDP. Why? Because uh, all of the elective surgeries were done out of, uh, were not being done and they're being delayed. So that pent up demand is going to hit hot and heavy in the coming months. And certainly, if not in Q2, Q3, hip replacements, knee replacements, heart surgeries, etc. So, um, that was hit hard. But the thing that was very interesting, because she asked the question, you know, what percentage of the drop was attributable to coronavirus? And I started off uh, and just explicitly stated 100%. I mean, that, that there's no question about it. And the reason is, if you look here at this BEA data table, which I originally saw an excerpt of this from Brian Chung from Yahoo on Twitter, and then I looked at the source material, you can go to BEA.gov. Uh, residential fixed investment in single family and multifamily properties was up 21% year on year. It goes to show you how much we were humming along going into coronavirus, really the strongest economy uh, we've seen in, in certainly a, a generation here uh, going in because you don't ramp up fixed residential investment uh, in weeks, you know, it, it's months in, in building up momentum. So that was huge to see. And it had really just started kicking off in Q3, Q4, and was was humming along. So as we get back to work, that, that'll come back. But uh, that was an interesting thing to see. Um, she also asked about the Federal Reserve. Uh, what tools do they have? And, you know, we talked about the Jerome Chairman Powell's meeting, he said he's going to keep rates to zero uh, until we hit full employment. And with obviously the now 30 million jobless claims um, in the last five weeks, uh, he's going to keep the pedal to the metal there and also until he hits sustainable 2% inflation. So he's basically said, I've got this thing backstopped in perpetuity. Uh, we're not going to try to get out of this uh, so quickly. Um, obviously, the quantitative easing, he's done about $2.5 trillion in the last, uh, since the end of February, and the new lending facility. So that was the core of my talk with 
uh, Lily. The other thing I, that I pointed out as far as GDP, because she brought up like there are estimates that it's going to be negative 30 or 40 percent for Q2. But for the year, the CBO, while they're very pessimistic for Q2, they have it at negative 5.6 percent for the year. And we've discussed pretty often that, uh, you know, round numbers, a $20 trillion economy, 6% is $1.2 trillion. We've now got $9 trillion authorized to fill that $1.2 to $1.5 trillion shortfall. And we'll go into that more in uh, this podcast video cast. The other thing that you have to look at is as pessimistic as the CBO Congressional Budget Office is bipartisan uh, is in the short term, they have a near 3% growth for next year. So uh, I think that they're likely overshooting on the downside in the short term and they're underestimating the upside in the intermediate term and we'll go into why in this call. So that is um, that was Lily Lou. Thank you so much. Next, we were on um, Graham Ledger's show on One America Network on Monday. I uh, don't have the clip for that yet, but uh, when I get it, I'll, I'll post it up. And uh, that's a really conservative show. And one of the things that I knew they were going to touch on was... A debt to GDP and the worries about that. We're borrowing all this money to shut down the economy, etc. And the point that um, I wanted to make on that was that, you know, this is a wartime effort. There's no question about it. You know, the invisible enemy, etc. But it, it, the characteristics are the same, where people are making shared sacrifice to get through a very hard period. In 1946, you have to keep in mind uh, World War II era, the U.S. debt to GDP hit 119%. We'll be over 100% debt to, debt to GDP at the end of the year, but not near 119%. And what followed, and there were many people during that period saying, we're, we're dead. We, we, we've never had debt to GDP this high, and it's unsustainable. Well, just seven years later coming out of that, debt to GDP fell by 68%, uh, uh, excuse me, it fell to 68% debt to GDP ratio from 119%. So we've got a long way to get to 119%, uh, but even if we did, the growth you can see coming out of this as we get through the virus with all that pent up stimulus, that fiscal stimulus, the monetary stimulus, and we'll break that down in this call, we could see growth rates three, four, five percent. And you're saying, how is that possible? Well, the most important thing, which I've discussed in previous uh, podcast video casts, is just what's driven booms historically over the last hundred years is population. So you had the roaring 20s because you had a generation that was doing housing formation, um, uh, moving out to the suburbs, etc. That was also from 1982 to 2000 was the baby boomers, um, you know, having kids, moving out to the suburbs, starting families. So where we've lacked that in the last 15 years is my generation, Generation X. So if you have, take the baby boomers or 80 million people, the Gen X, which dropped the ball, is 65 million people. That's why we were able to print you know, tons of money globally, $10 trillion, and get no inflation uh, in the last 10 years is because the demand was just too low from such a small population and small housing formation. You saw it in, in housing, et cetera, 65 million people. But now the biggest group 
is getting older, close to 30, 28 to 32. They're starting later, and that's the millennials. And the millennials are even bigger than the baby boomers were. They're not 80 million people. They're 85 million people. And if anything, two months at home with nothing to do, uh, number one, uh, you know, hopefully that will lead to a baby boom. And two, um, if you Google, apparently Zillow searches are through the roof. So while people are stuck into the cities, they're fantasizing about getting a house and getting the hell out of crowded areas. And that's understandable. And uh, we'll see if that's short term. But I do think that um, no matter how well you're doing, it, the idea of paying $50,000 for pre-K and kindergarten is not that attractive. And that forces people you know, in, in our area, the tri-state area, out of New York City into Connecticut um yeah uh, into Connecticut, New Jersey, Westchester, etc to get good schools, to have the space for kids, you know, it's hard to have a bunch of kids unless you have a, a 5000 square foot apartment. So, um so that trend will be very very uh good for growth in the 2020s and you couple that with that excess 8 9 10 trillion dollars of stimulus over and above the 1.2 trillion dollar economic contraction and you could have the formula for just really massive growth and once we get up to those three four five percent levels then then you can raise taxes uh i'm not obviously a fan of that but that happens that happened in the 90s the the economy was strong enough to sustain it as the boomers were just humming along uh you had higher tax rates and and the economy still boomed so that's how you can see same as in the 50s and in the 60s so after debt to gdp got to 100 19% in 1946 with all the stimulus and aid to keep things going through the shared sacrifice period. Uh, yes, in seven years, the debt to GDP ratio plummeted to 68%, but also in the 50s, so from 1948 to 1968, you had a massive period of prosperity, growth, uh, etc., and, uh, and a baby boom as well. So uh, keep all of that in mind as we move forward and we're going to talk about the potential that people are underestimating the growth rates that we're going to see uh certainly not in q2 uh and probably not even in q3 but for 2021 it can be something so i i wanted to cover that with graham and also um the other thing that uh they worry about is you know uh, that's uh, tends to be a conservative show so you know, the Democrats wanting $500 billion for, or more money for the states and municipalities to pay the coronavirus costs. And he was concerned about that. And I said, uh, look, the Democrats are going to want $500 billion for the states and municipalities. The Republicans are going to want a trillion dollars for infrastructure and more for, for businesses and small businesses re-up any of these small loans if they run out again um the sba loans so the democrats are going to get less than they want the republicans are going to get less than they want they'll come together they'll get a deal done and it'll be good for growth and when all is said and done that probably takes the total amount of stimulus aid and liquidity to about 10 trillion dollars to fix a 1.2 trillion dollar economic contraction close to 9 trillion dollars of stimulus just hitting when the this largest segment of the population, the millennials, 85 million people, are just starting housing formation, which is the formula for gr massive growth and success in a capitalist economy. So um, uh, I think 
the stars are coming together and yeah it's going to be a tough one for the next uh quarter quarter and a half headlines are going to get worse we all know people uh the most important thing is the human element who have gotten sick people have died people have lost loved ones um that is is uh certainly hard to cope with and we'll we'll have to get get through that but uh from an economic standpoint I think they're going to be very good to, things to come after we get through this short term. So that was the second one. So thank you to Graham Ledger for the Daily Ledger Show, Carolyn Midkiff and Ajara Bulakova for inviting me on that show. Uh, much appreciated that. Uh, then I did a show, uh, not, CGT, not CGTN Global Business, but CGTN America with... Rochelle Akufo. Uh, she was wonderful, very sweet, uh, enjoyed being on that show. And her question was um, about, you know, women being disproportionate, women and minorities being disproportionately hit uh, by the coronavirus. And why, why was that? And um, the issue is why they've been disproportionately hit and this is from the Kansas City Fed. And actually, this is, uh, ironically, also Brian Chung at Yahoo. You should follow him, guys. Uh, he is a phenomenal reporter. He covers a lot of Fed stuff, and he's a very granular reporter. And I met him once on set on, um, I think, uh, Julie Hyman's show and Adam Shapiro. Uh, and he, just a really smart guy. Definitely follow Brian Chung on Twitter. He puts out really good stuff. And this was timely because I had the interview the next day and it came in handy. So um, so basically, women held 63% of all the jobs in the hardest three hit industries from coronavirus. And a majority of these women did not have a college degree. So what were the hardest hit industries? Uh, accommodation and food services, healthcare and social assistance, and retail trade. So I, I don't think that, you know, the reason they're the hardest hit is because of, you know, they get laid off for, for some uh, unfair reason. I think they're the hardest hit because they were in those specific industries that got hit excessively hard. Like for instance, if you're a plastic surgeon the last three months, you got smashed. That's the bad news. The good news is you probably have a lot more reserves than someone, you know, that's working in food services, who's working in, uh, you know, as a nursing assistant that's not dealing with COVID. Uh, or um, uh, if you're a heart surgeon, it, it, et cetera. So, or, or in retail trade. Although Walmart is just booming. They've hired 200,000 people. I think Julia LaRoche uh, put that out on Yahoo. Um, also a good follow on Twitter. So, um, so that, that was really the crux of my interview with Rochelle. Uh, she'd also asked about, um, you know, why were some of the, oh, why, why are gig workers getting delayed checks? And the reason is, first and foremost, you have 30 million people hitting a system that was unprepared for it. Many of them had understaffed situations prior to coronavirus. It came on all at once. They passed a bill within a week. They got the money to the states within a week. 
but the states have never paid money to people who don't have W-2s. So in most of these states, you actually, if you're a gig worker, apparently you have to apply and get rejected. That's why you saw like Uber people getting, you're entitled to zero, and then reapply, and that will kick in the federal, the $600 a month, uh, on top of not less than half of the state. So in more than 50% of states, between the federal aid that goes all the way, I think, through the end of July and the state, uh, in more than half the states in the United States, you're at, people are actually making more money than they were when they were working. And which is a good thing for people that have that have no ability to work. It may be a little bit messy for those places that can slowly go back to work and then you have workers that are saying well why should i go to work when i'm making more at home and that'll get wrinkled out you know for all the critics out there better an imperfect plan instituted today than a perfect plan tomorrow because tomorrow never comes they got it done fast it was almost perfect close to perfect um you know, it is what it is, and these will get worked out. As far as businesses that you know got locked out of the first round of small business loans, they reloaded, and they're gonna. And what I told Rochelle is they're gonna continue to reload. So if you need money and you qualify for these programs, um, have no fear. Your money will get there. You just got to be persistent and um, and get through the bottleneck. I mean, 30 million people on the same staff as what was, uh, you know, a fraction of that just a few weeks ago, it is what it is. But they are moving faster than has ever happened in the history of government. For, and we've never even had something so sudden and so uh, uh, of this magnitude. So everyone's coming together. We're going to push through that. And um, and the what that's called for the gig workers, it's called the Pandemic Unemployment Assistance. And... That was Rochelle. So thanks for having me on. And that was Stephen Parker who put me on that show. So thanks for having me on the show on CGTN America. Uh, next, I want to cover the Kiplinger article with Ellen Chang. Uh, terrific. Uh, thank you for including me in your article. And the thesis of her article was sell in May and go away. Okay, there's a long-standing data set that says if you own stocks from the end of October till the end of April, you dramatically outperform versus the period from May 1st through um, the end of October. Uh, most of the gains happen from late October to uh, late April throughout the last hundred years. And that's uh, that's certainly true. Um, the thesis here was a lot of things are different this year. Obviously, the normal rules don't apply because long-term data sets are just averages. We had a, an enormous crash uh, prior to this, which would usually re preclude that. But more than that, I, I was talking to her about the rotation. So the quote itself, and you can find this uh, under the uh, featured on again, but was uh, the financial sector could be a good play, says Thomas Hayes. Uh, the last time banks were this underweight was July 2016, which those of you who have been following us, we, we um, have been presenting that the last couple weeks from the Bank of America Global Fund Manager Survey data. The last time they were this underweight banks and financials was July 2016. And their stocks proceeded to nearly double over the next 18 months. 
That's not to say this phenomenon will repeat, but it is to say that when one side of the boat is so overcrowded and certain, there can be rewards for taking the other side of the trade. We like and own banks here. So um, that was somewhat prescient in the sense that we had uh, through yesterday a 21% rally in uh, the KBE index in the last seven days since we made a strong case for it last week. Um, gave some back today, but th th it's a longer term thing, obviously 18 months, not 18 minutes. So thank you to Ellen Chang. And you should click here to read her full, full article at Kiplinger and check her out on Twitter. You, when you get to the article, you can click there, see her feed and follow her on uh, Twitter. Next um, is uh, was quoted in Reuters. Uh, this was uh, actually going into the day before yesterday, and we've talked about it the last few weeks. So I said uh, they were wondering why the market was down. I said as we go into earnings, people are getting nervous about all the concentration in the five key technology stocks, and they're probably taking a bit off the table. We've talked about this potential rotation, five stocks being the last time five stocks were uh, this high a percentage was 2000 and you can look at our article from last week just go to uh yeah just go to um sentiment category here on hedgefundtips.com or the commentary category and you can look that up and we saw that in spades today people getting out of uh some of the bigger tech names it's, you know, as I said last week, I don't see a crystal clear reason why they're going to just all run for the hills on the top five names. Obviously, Amazon got hit today uh, for the spending that they have to do with coronavirus. Uh, Apple was a little bit weak. Um, but uh, the, the point that I was making was as we get through muddle through this period and into the higher growth period back half of this year and early half of next year first half of next year we should see a broadening of the rally so uh maybe some out of those five names but certainly into some of the least loved names like um according to the bank of america global fund managers was banks industrials and materials and energy um, you know, energy now, I think they're up on average close to, they were up as of prior to today, up close to 70%, 60, depending on the indices, whether it's services, exploration, production, or integrated, uh, close to 70% off the lows in the last four weeks. So, um, that's, uh, you know, dramatically outperformed the market, which was up 35% a trough to recent peak. Uh, double out, outperformance of the least loved and least owned. Um, banks had, you know, we'll discuss again. So thank you to Sriyashi Senyal and Nividita C of Reuters for having me in your article this week to discuss that potential sector rotation uh, and or broadening of the rally on the whole. And then uh, was also in an article for Chibuke Ogu, and I want to thank him for having me up because he was wondering why the market was up, and it was the Gilead meeting the endpoint, and that is a key point which we'll also go into right now. Uh, markets were up on expectation because the Gilead drug met the clinical endpoint, uh, also more regional reopenings of states in the United States, 
and backstopping of the Fed, the chairman said that they'll be overly accommodative. Well, what the chairman actually said, which I covered on um, Lily Lou's show, and I forgot to mention now, is he said the word unlimited, okay? So it's uh, going to be, and we'll talk about that. That's a guy throwing a kitchen sink. So um, unlimited backstopping. So the Gilead thing, which meeting the endpoint was not a surprise. It was a surprise for the market because there was a China study. They, people were worried that the Chinese stopped the study. The reason the Chinese stopped the study on remdesivir is because their cases peaked on February 5th and they stopped the study at the end of February because there were no longer severe cases, patients to start in the study. That was the key. If you look back at the um, data from the Chicago study, 125 severe patients, uh, almost all of them were released within a week. They had anticipated that the drug treatment would take 10 days, which means now they have double the dosage that than they thought they had in stockpiles. That's a good thing. Plus, you had Daniel O'Day on today, the CEO, talking about they can make uh, multiple millions by, by next year. So it looks like they've got the production in gear. Uh, their fever curves dropped immediately in the Chicago stu study. These severe people were off the ventilator in one day in the Chicago study. Uh, took half the time that it, it, it was expected. And uh, this is going to re obviously reduce the strain on the healthcare system, hopefully get more of those elective surgeries back in and boost our GDP in the next couple of quarters. And uh, looks like they're fast tracking the FDA now that they met that endpoint. I think they got uh, just at the close today emergency approval for use for COVID-19 for um, remdesivir for Gilead. So that's all good stuff. So we have that going. Um, next thing I wanted to cover, the other point that I made with uh, Lily Lou on her show, the, the CGTN Global Business that I didn't touch on, and we've touched on in a few weeks, but I wanna reemphasize the point as we're slowly and regionally reopening as they did in China. Um, February 5th was their peak cases. Our peak cases were uh, about a week and a half ago in the United States. And what they were able to do from their trough in February, economically speaking, uh, through early April, they doubled their airline seats, seats in the air, from 4 million to 8 million, obviously still down from 14.7, but they're probably up. My guess is there are over 10 million in April. We'll see those numbers hopefully soon if they're not out already. I, I haven't heard them. These are third-party data, so... so um, uh, it's more objective. The TomTom Tom rush hour traffic is back to uh, pre-pandemic levels in all cities. Their employment, according to Bloomberg, is now about 90 to 95 percent of pre-pandemic employment. Uh, the production ca capacity back capacity is back up, and also oil demand. Okay, uh, in February it was below 10 million barrels a day. Uh, it's already in April over 12 million barrels a day, and that their peak was 13.7. So when you see that type of action, they're getting back. Their manufacturing is at 100% uh, of what it was. The consumer's been a little slower to come back, but you did see March to April, uh, I'm sorry, February to March sequentially, Apple, Apple sold 240%. 241% increase in handsets sold from uh, February trough to March, down 23% year on year, but still now Yum has got 99, Yum China, Taco Bell, Pizza Hut, um, 
has 99% of their stores open. Starbucks expects to be back to even uh, on comps by Q4 of this year. They were at negative 90% during the trough. They had to shut down all the stores. By the end of March, they were at neg they had a week of negative 42%. I think they'll be like negative 25% in the next few months and then, you know, hopefully to even by Q4. That is rocket speed considering what, what just happened. So um, very exciting to see that. The other thing is all the coal plants are burning at uh, max levels, uh, pre-pandemic levels. Their PMIs have been relatively strong recently. We got one yesterday was was pretty good. And we got one last month that was pretty good. So these are the type of things that we have to look forward to um, as well. So let's keep going here on to the next. So our primary article, make sure I got everything here. I've just got a lot. Okay, good. We hit the Gilead. So this was our article from Thursday, the high hope stock market and sentiment results. So this is Zeus throwing kitchen sinks uh, from heaven, and that is really the equivalent of our government policymakers. And I'm not saying that in a derogatory way. There is no alternative. And, you know, we're all purists until there are emergencies, and then we all get flexible and know that things have to be done. You know, for those folks who say everything should go bankrupt, you know, that's fine, except it just takes four to five years, and you lose a generation of productivity and... Um, you know, it, 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 it's better to expand a little bit like we did in World War II, add a little debt short term, and then come out of it with massive growth than just have so much pain and carnage, albeit it would be a shorter time frame. I know that argument as well. But uh, some of the people that get that's all that argument is always made by the top, you know, one to 10 percent that are fully capable, um, highly productive, gifted, talented, hardworking people. But some people, so you just have to have a little uh, compassion and understanding that, you know, we have the capacity to do these things to make, to cushion the blow and to resume growth quickly. We should do it. And we know it's worked historically and we know it's going to work now. So all the kitchen sinks in the world. So <laughs> the, the dichotomy is, you know, uh, the song that we chose this week was High Hopes by Panic at the Discos, the name of the band. And the hopes are rooted in three factors, which we're going to discuss. Stimulus, aid, and liquidity. The treatment, which we got with remdesivir. And demand is reopening the country, which we're starting to do in some places faster than others. Um, the lyrics is... Had to have high, high hopes for a living, shooting for the stars when I couldn't make a killing, didn't have a dime, but I always had a vision, always had high, high hopes. And that's what's killing a lot of people that missed um, adding uh, during the month of March because the numbers look so gloomy and everything looked so horrible and people were just, so many people are dying and so much sadness and chaos. Um, but, you know, effectively looking at the CBO says GDP could contract by 39%. You've got 30 million people have filed unemployment claims. Never has happened. Um, you have um, GDP down for the year expected of 5.6%. We don't have a vaccine yet. And yet the markets rallied 35% off the March 23 lows in the last few weeks. And that was the line from the song, didn't have a dime, but I always had a vision. Obviously, the market's sniffing out 
the recovery. It might be a little ahead of itself, obviously. Uh, we have to consolidate and digest some of the gains. Uh, for sure, anytime you have a move that dramatic that quickly, but um, the, the key question that everyone keeps asking is what does the market see that the economy isn't experiencing at present? Well, the economy is getting worse in the short term, um, although that trend may start to change because expectations are now so low. Um, while the stock market's getting better. And what the point of this article is, and no one's talking about, is that while in, you know, as I said, it in the short term, the market might be ahead of itself, but we may see growth rates in 2021 that would not have been possible if not for COVID-19. And that just sounds absolutely bananas when we're in the middle of a recession, okay? That's the fact, Neg two negative quarters of GDP growth. We just had one and we're gonna have another one and just accept it. But by the time they declare it, we'll all be already be in our growth phase and recovering. So don't wait for them to declare a re recession. Like Warren Buffett says, if you wait for the robins to sing, it's already spring. Uh, the time to be adding was in darkest moments last uh, month, but we'll t you know which we were doing. You can go through our, our articles, but we'll talk about some of the things we're doing uh, now as we move forward here. So uh, we covered the Lily Luar um, segment. So let me break it down. How can we have this view with 30 million people? filing for unemployment claims. And, you know, everyone just points back to depression numbers, but it's the conditions. You have to understand the conditions and the context. Well, you don't have to do anything. I just, this is my opinion. Um, you have to understand the conditions and the context in which those numbers are being printed. So this is not some long-term credit buildup like we had in, you know, generation, Kondriatov uh, wave, where you had in 2008 with, all of the the debt and the reckless lending and et cetera, et cetera, uh, as you had in the late 20s. This is like a natural disaster, as Ben Bernanke put it best. It was the it's the best explanation he came up with a few weeks ago. Think of it like a tornado, a hurricane. You know, when you had Katrina and you had uh, Hurricane Andrew. You know, these are things where it's not like the depression, where 20 years later they're still trying to figure out which way is up, or 10 years later. You know, it's a it's a drastic, huge contraction. Everything shut shut down in New Orleans. Everything shut down in the areas hit by the hurricane. And then, you know, within months, people are rebuilding. The economy's bouncing back. But for a month, everything's shut down. Everything's broken. Emergencies. People dying. People losing house. You know, houses in the cases of hurricanes and Katrina, etc. And then it recovers. Maybe it recovered more slowly than it should have in some of these instances, obviously, but it's not a depression. It's not 2008 where it takes years and years and years to glue the plate back together. It's we got hit with a tornado. We got hit with a hurricane. OK, it's passed. We hit peak cases two weeks ago. Let's slowly start to reopen, slowly start to rebuild, slowly start to do this. It was an exogenous, acute event, not a prolonged buildup and a prolonged contraction. And that's how we have to think about this. You know, and there are businesses that won't reopen, unfortunately. I mean, that that's hard and people are saying that and they are correct. Uh, but I do think a lot of this is going to reopen more than people anticipate. And the government is really set to make people whole. And 
that's on balance. So anecdotally, some people may get hurt and not recover immediately, or they might have to shift into a new business or a new industry or whatever, or you know they're waiting for their funding, et cetera. But on balance, as an economy and as a community, it, it's going to get better, I think, and, and growth is going to resume um, certainly towards Q4 and, and first half of next year. So we've already discussed the pothole of 1.2, but let's talk about the excess asphalt on a granular basis so we just understand it because I, I just think this is a lot of people are struggling with this idea when you see 30 million people file for unemployment, all these businesses hurt, all these people dying. It just strikes them that the only numbers they can compare it to in their mind are 2008, 73, 74, Great Depression, etc. And again, those were protracted periods. This is going to be an acute period. That's number one. Number two, the other difference is in the case of 2008 and in the case of the Great Depression, they waited for things to break before they went aggressive. Never before in the history of the developed world has a government so proactively and so aggressively uh, come to put the trampoline down so as the plate fell off the table, there was a cushion to blow versus 2008 and the Great Depression where they waited for the plate to crash and then they spent years and basically, you know, uh, in the case of the Depression, a generation gluing the pieces back together versus now getting that trampoline out, let the plate bounce off versus break, put the plate back on the table and move on with things like you do in a natural disaster. So I uh, want to overemphasize that. So um, the government's filling in the pothole. How are they doing it? Congress, first off, they've passed two point, about $2.8 trillion of direct aid and stimulus to date. Uh, where did that money go? We covered that two weeks ago. Uh, 603 went directly to individuals. People forget, you got a stimulus check, you know, many families that are the most vulnerable, uh, two kids, two adults, 3,400 bucks, uh, which was, you know, that's in addition to whether they're getting paid or getting unemployment on top of it. And in most states, they're uh, making more with the additional $600 a week from the federal government on top of their state unemployment. Um, Large corporations got 500 billion. Small businesses got 377 billion. That's since be re been reloaded. We're going to cover state and local governments already got 339 billion, and public services got 180, 179 billion. Then they re-upped it, did another 483, uh, reloaded the PPP program. By the way, the PPP, for those who don't understand, I know a lot of big public companies got slack for taking that money. And the reason they got slack is because they didn't allocate enough money for the program. And some of them could hit the tap, they could tap the capital markets on their own, which they should have. So they returned the money, et cetera, which is fine. But the PPP loans, just to keep it in mind before you really cast material judgment if it's 250 percent of payroll utilities etc to keep people employed to the extent that you take the money and you lay people off it becomes a loan that you have to pay back the only way that's a gimme is if you keep everyone on payroll whether they're working or producing for you or not that's the only way it gets forgiven so for everyone else it was yeah it's a low interest loan okay so business all businesses could use a low interest loan in that case, the big players should not have stepped in front of them, and many of them have returned the money, and now they're naming names for the second round when they give back. So if you're a small business and you got cut out of the first round, you'll likely get this this round. 
Um, most people are saying go to a regional bank versus the big banks. They're getting approved faster for some reason, or they're more adept at navigating the SBA process. I guess they have more experience with smaller businesses. Um, hospitals got 75 billion. Testing got 25 billion, which is a good thing. That's a huge part of the reopening process. And 52 in mis miscellaneous. Uh, now, the Federal Reserve runs a kitchen sink factory. So we had the cartoon above. And what are they doing? So so we got 2.8 trillion. Remember, the CBO, who's the most negative and conservative group, understandably, because they have to budget, Congressional Budget Office, uh, nonpartisan, negative 5.6 on a 20 trillion economy. That's a $1.2 trillion contraction in activity. We just went through 2.8 trillion. So we're already overfunded there. Uh, we filled the $1.2 trillion hole and we got another, you know, trillion, trillion and a half of excess stimulus that's going to be in the system. You'll only feel the effect of that as people start to go back to work and you get demand. It's like the, like I covered in recent weeks, it's like being in a race car at the starting line. It's yellow, but it's not yet green. And the government has this put nitrous oxide in your tank. So you're not only driving a fast car, it's idled at present. We know the US economy is a fast car relative to much of the rest of the world, but it's at idled. As we get out of the starting gate, it's gonna be very slow. We're just running on like 89 uh, 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 octane when, when we should be running at 93. So we're gonna be slow out of the gate, but there's this tank, this excess beyond the 1.2 trillion in stimulus, liquidity, and aid, which is going to amount to, and we'll walk through it, another nine trillion dollars when all is said and done. 8.8 .8 trillion. I think we're going to top out at about 10 trillion on everything, um, and that's going to be your nitrous button. Nitrous oxide makes a car just go like a rocket. Once you press the button, and that special fuel hits the tank, you just like double your speed. And I think we're going to see that around Q4, Q1, uh, first half of 2021. The nitrous is all the money beyond the hole, the $1.2 trillion hole, and let's go through it. So first, uh, the kitchen sink one, they slash rates down to zero quickly, and he said he's this week he's going to keep them there in perpetuity until we hit 2% inflation, which is a long way off, and back to full employment. We just had 30 million jobless claims, so uh, he's basically saying for a year and a half plus we're, or two, we're going to be at uh, low rates, which which will be good because we have the demography to drive growth, which we covered with the millennials. Number two, quantitative easing. They've done $2.5 trillion in the last uh, month and a half. Why is that good? Uh, because you've got now 2.5 trillion of liquidity. They're buying, um, they're backstopping, you know, the biggest growth in that asset purchase was in mortgage-backed securities. That's gonna keep rates low and it forces money out on the risk curve and makes money more available for small businesses, makes money available for consumers, makes money available in the real estate market. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to get a mortgage. So what's the good of you know zero to 25 bips for you know fixed residential investment, investment, et cetera, if you can't get the money? They're basically pushing the money into banks to get it pushed out to us to give them cash to lend out to make money so uh now you're at you know over five trillion with that <clears throat> next they did the the discount window i'm not i'm not going to go into this but uh they pushed banks to lend and use their capital and liquidity buffers you can read about that 
They did a commercial paper funding facility to keep short-term credit flowing. That's $100 billion. Primary dealer credit facility, that's for people um, uh, in the treasury market to keep that flowing, keep rates down. Uh, money market liquidity, so you don't have to worry about breaking the buck, uh, as was the case in the 2008 crisis. And remember, we were all worried about TED spreads and all that, looking at the short-term funding rates, overnight funding rates. Well, they've, they've handled that. As a matter of fact, this morning, the short-term, the repo market had zero bids. So if you remember, for the last few months, it had been huge amounts, 80 billion, 100 billion a morning, and now uh, that demand has come down. So there's a calm coming into credit markets from all the actions they've taken. The TALF program, for those of you who are around in the 2008-2009, uh, this is $100 billion uh, to uh, facilitate the flow of credit in, they're gonna be buying asset-backed securities, consumer receive credit cards, uh, consumer loans, etc., um, car loans, that type of thing, credit card. So that's going to keep money flowing to consumers, which is you know over two thirds of the economy. Um, the foreign international monetary repo facility, you can read about that. The paycheck protection program, we went into that. Basically, you keep people on, you get the loan is forgiven. You don't keep people on. It's a um, low interest loan to get keep businesses through the tough period. Um, that affects, by the way, the PPP, I heard a statistic, affects 50% of the US workforce are gonna be positively impacted by the loans made to small businesses through the Paycheck Protection Program. That's phenomenal. Now, the bigger ones, the, this is huge for the credit markets, and that was really the turnaround when they announced that they were going to be helping uh, less than investment grade credit companies in the primary market for new issuance, they would be buyers in certain instances. For sec for the secondary market, they're buying through the high yield ETFs and have the facility to buy individual securities for certain credit ratings uh, whose credit ratings had recently fallen. And now, <coughs> um, so that's $600 billion for the Main Street um uh, these are in addition to the primary and the secondary for the high yield market. And then you've got the Main Street Loan Facility and the Expanded Loan Facility, which we're going to get into right now, and the Municipal Liquidity Facility for states and municipalities, $500 billion there, which they're going to want to have more. Uh, again, hat tip to Brian Chung. Click here for his article because he goes through each of these different programs that they've put into place in record time, literally in the last four, four to eight weeks, um, to pull us off the brink of the cliff and they're working and they're working in a major way and and as you get off that adrenaline rush which we're now starting to thaw um that money is going to create some serious velocity during to toward the back half of this year so check out brian chung's thing because brian goes into not just what they are and how they affect business but how it actually impacts main street so definitely check out that article um Okay, so let's talk about the new Main Street Lending Program options, which came yesterday, April 30th. Uh, for new loans, it's the maximum loan size was 25 million. It's LIBOR plus 3%. So this is really low cost capital. And we'll go to the term sheets, but these are four year loans. Then you have the priority loans, which goes up to. Um, 
again to 25 million or six times. So, so the maximum loan size for the new loan program is four times adjusted EBITDA of 2019. The priority loans is maximum of six times adjusted EBITDA or less than 25 million. And then there's these expanded loans, which are gonna help some public companies and they won't get the scarlet letter that many companies got going for the small PPP loans. These are designed for these type of businesses, uh, less than 15,000 employees. I think it's less than 5 billion in revenue. It was two and a half billion, now it's five. Uh, but up to $200 million at low cost, LIBOR plus 3%, even if you're below investment grade, this is going to help a lot of businesses. And if you're a mid-sized public company that's uh, thinking about this and you have your investment banking relationship with one of the, you know, JP Morgan, Wells Fargo, City, you're probably better off going to your largest local regional bank, you know, if you're in the South, SunTrust, uh, Fifth Third, that type of thing and you probably get, get these done more quickly. Um, so here are the term sheets, and we basically went through it here. The new loan facility, those are 25 million or less. Uh, priority is also 25 million or less, and then the expanded is uh, annual revenue is less than five billion, so they bumped that up, and 50, less than fifteen thousand employees. So there are going to be a lot of public companies in this, and less than two hundred million. Again, this all keeps people employed until you know, because the one thing people have a short memory. In January, employers were fighting for people, so if they can hold on to people for two months while the country, you know, another two three months while the country reopens, and not have to fire people, and then scramble to to hire talent again like they were trying to do in January, uh, this is gonna help facilitate that and that's how it gets to Main Street. So let's wind up the article and get you on to your weekend. So the two key lessons here and why I spent all the time going through all these billions, 500 billion, 600 billion, 600 billion, 100 billion, 750 billion. Okay, so the primary, uh, this is where they're buying the uh, high yield debt, 750 billion in the primary market, new issuance, 750 billion in the secondary market. You know, these are the employers, these are the large scale employers in the country, uh, mid sized, small and mid sized businesses. And when you add all of this up, you'll get to a number, you know, just under 9 trillion on a $1.2 trillion problem. And we're probably gonna get, like I said, on the um, One America, you're probably gonna get a trillion dollars of infrastructure as the cherry on the Sunday by the end of the year. If not before the election, afterwards, both sides seem to want it. The Republicans will concede and give the states more money for coronavirus. The uh, Democrats will concede and give the Republicans more money for uh, infrastructure. Two key lessons from the granularity of the $10 trillion. So why is the market up 35% even though the economy looks like it ter looks horrible in the short term is number one, and if you didn't learn it the last time, don't fight the Fed. You're fighting the richest guy in the world, and in this case, the Treasury's backing him up. And number two, don't bring a knife to a gunfight. So, um, you know, you're swimming an uphill battle. Yes, the economics are unfavorable in the short term, but the liquidity that's gonna hit as demand hits as people goes back is a tsunami of liquidity. And you can't imagine that now because everything looks grim and dark, but just 
hang tight, look through my glasses. End of this year, certainly the first half of next year, we will see growth as that hits the economy. The other thing that uh, Lily Lou asked, which was a good question, is well, what about a second wave? I think everyone's aware of a second wave. And what we know is in most cases, the second wave is more easily, by then we'll have better testing and tracing and isolation. So it's generally less um, pronounced and it's more quickly containable than the first wave as there, as we covered last week a lot about the antibody test and the serology test. Quite a few people, 55 times more in the case of LA County and Santa Clara, have been exposed to it and have antibodies to the coronavirus than had been previously thought. The mortality rate's much lower than previously thought. So there's going to be a lot of natural in immunity, uh, although not perfectly pr proven. I'm not a doctor. You know, just do your own research. But that's generally the case. The second wave will not be the same magnitude, and we're better experienced to handle it, isolate it, and treat it. Uh, next, we covered that. We covered that. Okay, the short-term view, bullish percent actually moved up a little bit, which is interesting. It hit an extreme last week. The fear got down, to, the bullish percent got down to 24.86 in the uh, AAII, American Association of Individual Investor Sentiment Survey. Um, the bearishness was at an extreme at 50%. It dropped down to 44, but these are only barely thawing. These are not excessively bullish readings. And this is after a 35% rally in a few weeks. I mean, it was the, uh, you know, it's just ripped. So in the last six weeks and, um, people are still in their bunkers, which is generally positive. We do have a lot to digest. We've moved a lot in a short period of time, but the fact that people are still so fearful, even after such a move, tells you that the pain trade is probably still up a little bit. You know, many people talk about the FIB ratios. It hit the 61.8 and now we're bouncing off that with all the algos. Okay, that's fine. I think we just have to digest it. I mean, we're not going to go up every day, you know, forever. We, we've got a lot to deal with economically in the short term. We know that. Um, and that's that. So, uh, and then the other thing everyone's looking at is the 200 day, which I think is a bit over three. I don't have it in front of me. Uh, oh, I'll pull it up, but it's like three on the S and P it's, um, I'll pull it up in a second. It's, um, I think it's 3009 on the S and P, you know, these are all arbitrary things. They only, work exceptionally well in retrospect. I've never had someone say to me, oh, we are going to stop at the 200-day moving average before it happened. They'll look back at a chart and say, see, of course it stopped at the 200-day moving average. I mean, they're just silly guidelines. You, you keep an eye on them because, yeah, yeah, the 200 moving average right now is 3,005, so another 170 points. I don't know if we get there. It seems like we turned over a little bit here to consolidate at the uh, Fibonacci 61.8% level, but again, guys, this is short-term voting stuff. Who cares? Uh, what we're talking about is long-term weighing machine. If you read uh, Ben Graham's book, which we talked about last week. So uh, the intelligent investor. So uh, next is the fear and greed index. Again, after a 35% rally, it's only neutral. I mean, in most cases you'd be at extreme greed and you'd be having to lighten up dramatically here. We're barely halfway there. It's probably up a bit more now, but uh, this was Thursday morning. Although maybe not after today, it's probably back down. 
National Association of Active Investment Managers, we've been saying for weeks it was pinned down here at 10 to 20, even after the market was rallying, that, that managers were going to have to start to chase. Well, finally, after a 35% rally, uh, we got this level up to 45%. But as you can see, there's, you know, there's a lot of room here until they get over-invested on the equity side and they will have to chase. We might be consolidating here. You might have a little bit of this action at the bottom where it goes back down before they really get exposure. But uh, they were underweight. They missed 35%. Now they got to get some exposure, if not here, when we get back down. But um, on balance, that's, that's a constructive thing. Uh, okay, so our message for the week Last week, we made a really strong case for a rotation out of the highly concentration stock, concentrated stocks and or broadening into some of the um, under-owned. So banks are the most under-owned since July 2016, as we covered in Ellen's article. They nearly doubled the next 18 months. It doesn't mean that repeats, but it does mean that when something is so skewed and so many people are on one side of the boat, you get paid to take the other side and here's what happened up until yesterday when the article was written today we gave back a little bit but 21.8 percent move in the um, kbe uh, bank index in the last seven days since that article so maybe we'll give back a quarter or half of it consolidate and then move back up again but that was nice to see the broadening of that we talked about energies up was up close to 70 percent off the lows we probably gave back five percent today um, and then we're going to talk also about industrials and materials where the other two under owned, uh, in particular, there was one story out on industrials on Boeing today. We want to talk about that. The other thing that ripped in the last two weeks, which we've seen, which is again, a sign of broadening, small caps were dramatically outperforming. Banks were dramatically outperforming and home builders are dramatically outperforming, maybe starting to discount what I was talking about with people now moving out, housing formation, what's going to drive growth in the 2020s and, and probably early 2030s. Um, so keep an eye on the those underweight as we get through this consolidation period. What emerges as new leadership? Will that rotation continue into banks, small caps, home builders, etc.? Or will it just revert right back to the top five that are 22% of the weight, you know, FANG plus Microsoft, etc.? Okay, um, here we talked about, obviously we're not buying a ton of equities up. Uh, we're certainly not buying them wholesale and haven't been buying them wholesale since the beginning of April. Uh, we've been buying them on a discrete basis and uh, we bought uh, some uh, two positions today, but they're ones that haven't participated yet that haven't or haven't participated in the same way and they're getting ready to be rotated into. Um, but the buying time was in March. If you go through our notes and videos, then we were pounding the table on buying high quality. That was down 50%, you know, plus, uh, et cetera. So what we've been focused on since April, if we haven't been focused on equities, we've been focused on discrete opportunities and selected securities and high yield, which um, we started right around the time that the Fed announced that they were going to be in the high yield market. And that's helped quite a bit. But there's still another number of names that are down 40 to 60 percent, 30, 40, 60, 50 percent from par just in, because of 
coronavirus in the last eight weeks. We believe a number of these are going to make it back to the par and you're getting paid 15 to 25 to 30% to wait. Plus you'll make a double on your money, etc. So we're focused on some of that. In the meantime, same plan. We do nothing on green days in the market. We only buy on red days when people are selling stuff. We are there to buy it from them. Um, okay, we're done with this. Last few things. Uh, we've been noticing a lot of insider buying and unusual option volume in those out of favor under owned sectors that we've been talking about that money is starting to rotate, rotate into like Wells Fargo. Uh, here's a small bank, Webster Bank. Again, this is the one you would definitely find in the KBE index. Um, okay, next, last few things and then we're done for today. Uh, the 